0: Welcome to Stroke FM. I'm Human Costrovani, one of the stroke doctors in Toronto. We are now joining you on part two of our two-part uh, episode on crisis resource management uh, in hyperacute uh, stroke care and and, and human performance and team factors. I have with me my two
1: colleagues and the two first authors on this paper.
2: Thanks, Uman. Happy to join you. Um, this is Pav, one of the Chief Neurology Residents at the University of Toronto.
1: Thanks, Uman, for having me back again. Uh, Lowell Notario, uh, clinical nurse educator uh, in one of the emergency departments in Toronto.
0: Welcome back. So we're going to pick it right back up where we left off last time, which was around cognitive load and the types of processes that are happening cognitively. Lowell, you uh, outlined this very nicely in the paper on this section. Do you wanna tell us a little bit about kind of what's thought to occur in human beings' minds when they're trying to figure out what to do in a situation?
1: Yeah, so first off, um, my total disclaimer is I'm not a psychologist at all. And, <laughs> and this is uh, this is a common thing that we talk about in health professions education, but uh, um, you know, uh, when we when we talk about uh, cognitive load, it it taps in heavily on on our colleagues from cognitive psychology and our psychology friends.
0: Specifically, uh, you're thinking about uh, Daniel Kahneman, right?
1: Yeah, <laughs> a lot of a lot of lessons learned uh, from uh, Daniel Kahneman and 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 many others in in the field that kind of set set the tone for us. So, so when we think about cognitive load, um, one of the the common theories is that um, the way we process information can be generally divided into two two ways of thinking or or two systems. So uh, they they have referred to this as System One and System Two thinking. So System One uh, thinking is. Um, is a is a cognitive process where your brain relies on innate knee-jerk reactions and where you're you're kind of going off of fixed patterns uh, which you you have trained yourself to to recognize over a series of time and 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 that can come from a variety of different uh, uh, avenues uh, either from repeated exposure uh, to a certain uh, certain type of situation or certain simu Situations. Um, a lot of people would refer to System One uh, thinking as a more undeveloped uh, uh, intuition uh, amongst clinicians, where uh, they're, they're just going off of their their gut or or that that gestalt. Um, <clears throat> When you contrast that with System Two thinking, this is a little bit of a more analytical and more more logical thinking, where you're kind of putting yourself through the paces. You're trying to you're trying to resist some of those uh, 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 immediate knee jerk reactions, and you're trying to try to think through a situation logically. And you're you're asking yourselves all of the questions and and all of the differentials and, and trying to think what are all of the different possibilities or etiologies for someone's pain. A, a quick example that that we would uh, often see in the emergency department is if I ever presented to you a case of you know an elderly female that was um, uh, found on the floor and she had. Uh, hip pain and shortening an external rotation of of her lower extremity, the knee-jerk reaction from that would, would almost always be uh, there's a hip fracture. But then uh, the system two thinking would, would force you to start thinking about, okay, are there any other possible reasons uh, for uh, for this pain and, and for the way this patient is presenting? Now, in many, many, many cases, the System one thinking, or that the, that knee jerk reaction, is usually correct, especially in the experienced clinician. And when we talk about expertise and 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 expertise of the clinician, we we often see that you know uh, that that person can just walk into the room, and they can sniff like they they take two steps. And say that's a hip fracture, and walk out, and, and and they're done, right? And like then you have like the 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 first year medical student or, or or the first year resident saying, how did you know that? Like like did you even ask? Did you even order an X-ray? Like what happened? Did you even ask the OPQRST for the pain, um, right? And and when we when we look at the different clinicians uh, in in terms of expertise levels, novice clinicians have a greater tendency to fall back on that analytical thinking. Asking all of the questions, thinking about all of the differentials. Uh, so it's not to say that you know your uh, system one or your knee-jerk reaction is is uh, um, is a bad thing. It, it can certainly help a experienced clinician get to a conclusion much faster than having to go through all of the paces. Um, <clears throat> on the other hand, the system two thinking can ensure that you're asking yourselves all of the different questions to uh, uh, ensure that you're not missing anything. So for example, when we're thinking about this lady with the hip fracture, some of the forcing functions to think about um, all of the factors surrounding this person's presentation is, well, why did she fall? Did she hit her head? Um, Do we need to scan her head in addition to her hip? right? Um, is there any underlying uh, medical reason for this fall? Or did she simply just trip and fall over a rug? Or did she have some sort of medical event or dysrhythmia causing this? Did she have some sort of syncope? syncope? I'm not totally discounting uh, System 1 or System 2 thinking. The, the The recognition is that we we actually all rely on both, uh, both uh, types of thinking. And... It's the recognition that in in many cases, our knee jerk reactions or our gut reactions or our just gestalts about a patient's situation often is correct. and, and, And you get more and more accurate with repeated exposure and clinical experience. However, sometimes we have to think about uh, the patient situation. If they are not really fitting the, that cookie-cutter pattern, if there's something off about that patient's uh, presentation, then we have to think really hard, is this really uh, just a hip fracture or is there something else underlying that I should probably think about?
0: That's fantastic. That's a great outline. And if you guys are interested in more about learning about uh, the concept of System 1 and System 2, uh, Daniel Kahneman has a great book called uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. Where he goes through this, and I'm really glad you highlighted um, the System One thinking in that it has value in the experienced provider. Um, uh, he gave a very nice talk actually for uh, Google, which you can find on YouTube. Uh, we may put it in the show notes, um, where you know the, the goal of crisis resource management is obviously to write to, to excuse me to land on the right management strategy for that patient. And it turns out that, you know, uh, he for example gives, a, uh, gives the example of a, of a master chess player. Well, system one thinking in a master chess player is gonna statistically generally lead to good moves and good outcomes very reflexively just because of the amount of training they have. However, uh, in a more novice individual, that system one thinking would be more kind of uh, full of uh, uh, flaws, and and system two thinking is better. So it's not that exactly what you said, and and I think the concept really there is that, um, and I think something that uh, you know the the Navy Seals uh, have said it comes from them is they say that slow is smooth and smooth is fast. So slow is smooth. Uh, so yes, so you have to kind of slow down to be able to actually speed up by by uh, kind of slowing down, sometimes switching into system two thinking uh, and uh, go forward. And in fact, uh, Pav, this is really kind of what's behind uh, another project that you guys are both involved in with uh, you know what we published on the protected code stroke with the buddy system.
2: That's right. Um, so uh, that actually kind of takes us to the next uh, sort of, Pillar of um, crisis resource management, which is uh, role clarity. It's important for everyone to have a clear understanding of everyone's roles. Um, you know, there's a code leader, um, and, and then there's all the other members, and and each of them has a very important role that's equally important. Um, and it's and it's important for those um, people to know who they are, so that you optimize team dynamics. Uh, but to do that properly, um, it's important for people to kind of know each other's skill set and and sort of abilities. Um, you don't want to assign uh, someone who may not be as experienced with something that's extremely hard or something that's very time sensitive. You want to save those kind of tasks for someone who, who has much more experience. Um, this is a common challenge though right because uh, as we know with our code strokes it's ad hoc teams um you know especially overnight when there's a resident on call you know that resident may be an off-service resident who is not a neurology resident um and they're now meeting um these nurses in the emergency department who they've never met before and so you've just all of a sudden built this team of people that have never met each other um uh, but that's why it actually becomes even more important to go through that zero point survey uh you know quickly get to know each other's names uh figure out what your roles are going to be, what you're going to do ahead of time. Uh, because the last thing you want is to head into that code stroke or that resuscitation um, and not know what anyone is doing and start clashing. Uh, and that's when when things get messy, right? Um, that's why we we kind of recommend that pit crew type approach uh, where everyone is sort of stationed um, you know, uh, st- stationed for battle at uh, each of their posts. And you don't want to get in the way of the nurse who's trying to put an IV in, which is going to be very important to get that CT angiogram uh all to check you know that arm for weakness um and so being able to recognize roles and coordinate that but also spatially organize yourself is all really important uh for for crisis resource management and ultimately a successful resuscitation
0: yeah we took this to a whole new level as our group and we uh, literally uh took a bird's eye view uh looking down onto the resuscitation bay and kind of figured out where people go
1: yeah um and you 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 can imagine that patient care rooms in an emergency department are not necessarily the uh, two thousand square foot uh, apartments that uh, we would uh, normally expect in a large uh, facility, academic facility. Um, and 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 often uh, we're in patient care rooms that have limited space. And with especially with with the multiple team members and and um, kind of focusing themselves around the patient, spatial awareness becomes. Really important, and being aware of where you are in relation to the rest of your team members, so that you're not, you know, literally butting elbows (laughs) with each other uh, or 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 walking over each other when you're all trying to create uh, complete a critical task on that note it's also important to to recognize that if you have completed your task um it is important to get out of the way almost right so so to recognize that i i'm i've completed my task and to allow the others to complete their task i should get out of the way and give them the space to work kind of that get in get out mentality
0: that's excellent yeah and and just to wrap that up with uh, both cognitive load and role clarity, that's why in the Protected Code Stroke, we kind of offloaded cognitively the business of being properly uh, uh, kind of uh, donning and doffing of PPE and safety of that to the safety lead. And in addition, with the role clarity, we have folks outside the room and something that, you know, uh, certainly in Canada, Lowell was a pioneer and in, in kind of doing was these uh, wonderful kind of very easy to comprehend graphical uh, displays that show who should be in the room and who should be outside the room, uh, and then using uh, in our case, which really honestly spread like rapid uh, wildfire across all the centers, was the use of baby monitors. So uh, uh, so, so to have them kind of on inside and outside the room, so kudos to uh, Lowell for uh, kind of getting on that, certainly in Ontario, Canada, which which uh, really spread quickly across the um, kind of local Toronto area. Uh, that was really cool. Um, so this gets us into communication. Like talking uh, effectively is uh, is really important. Um, and uh, and I think um, maybe I give you a scenario and you guys can kind of give me your take on that. Recently, I gave a talk on CRM and someone asked, you know, how do you kind of control the room um Especially if there's already an attending there or someone of, of, a, of a position of sort of um, importance and then, um, you know, someone else comes in and they may they they or may not see something wrong or they're trying to inadvertently derail the situation. What are some of the, some of the skills that you've seen effective for being a good leader, but also uh, respecting the team?
1: Communication in a crisis or medical resuscitation is definitely a common topic, and and beyond some of those basic tools that I think we all learn, such as SBAR and closed-loop communication, making sure that your message is received and feeding back to the sender of that message that the task that they have asked for is complete or done or whatever. We talk about this all of the time, especially when we're looking at actual critical events that have happened. And there's this recognition that um, there's a general general fear to speak up from many team members, right? And, and we talk about this all the time that although that you do not, you are not the actual team leader and you're not in charge per se of the team, Everybody in the room has a role of leadership. And we call this concept distributive leadership, where everybody in the room has a role in speaking up when there is uh, an identified issue or there's a concern um, or or there's a safety event uh, that is about to happen. Okay. So, and, and, and we learned this from many critical events that's happened, um, uh, in the, in the hospital where we recognize that something was going to happen. We knew exactly what was the correct, corrective action. And then when we asked the team, well, did you say anything? They would say, no, I didn't think it was my place. And we we have to kind of move away from that that hierarchical um, uh, tr- uh, roles that we we had w- with you know the, having one leader and and you had all of the subordinates and and move towards kind of an egalitarian uh, leadership style where everybody feels empowered to speak up when they can.
0: That's excellent, and that's the concept that we promote. Uh, and we really adhere to, uh, we try to adhere to the concept of a flat hierarchy. Um, before we uh, re- return to the kind of the last pillar and su- uh, and summarize with debriefing, Lo, tell us about simulation and kind of where this fit into the framework. And we actually talked about kind of doing simulation first, but then we kind of said, you know what? Let's actually outline the framework. Uh, Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and your thoughts? Yeah,
1: so for sure. Um, So, simulation has had a huge role probably in the last 15, 20 years uh, in medical education. And, um, you know, we've had lots of opportunity to fine tune some of our responses to various medical emergencies and trauma emergencies through simulation. Um, And it all kind of started uh, by taking the medical team into a uh, simulation lab where where it's kind of removed from the clinical environment, and we kind of you know have that, have the mannequin and uh, on a bed, and we kind of put the team through its paces. Eventually, it kind of evolved into uh, in situ simulation, where we take the mannequin and uh, the the, the um, all of the equipment, and we. We run the scenario within the actual environment um, that the actual clinical team would uh, see a patient in, and that actually has two primary objectives um, when when we run in-situ simulation, the first being medical education and and, and, and developing the team and uh, developing either their technical or non-technical skills. But then the other piece of that, the other piece of that being a quality improvement uh, point of view and, and looking at um, trying to stress the system and identify any potential sources for latent error, right? So, so uh, when we run a simulation in the actual clinical environment, Uh, we can identify any potential sources that may negatively impact uh, the patient. Maybe we'll realize that, hey, uh, the time it takes us to get to CT is actually a significant amount of time so we should probably thinking, think about having some safety equipment uh, to take along with us uh, just in case we we lose an airway halfway to CT, or or realizing that that trip uh, to our CT scanner is a very long uh, long way. So uh, we should probably think about having an open line of communication so that the team uh, can contact their colleagues for help if they're in transit and run into some trouble.
0: Those are all excellent points. Pav, did you want to say some stuff about Simulation and kind of like what your thoughts are on kind of why we went to CRM versus just starting from Sim?
2: Well, you know, I think um, before you even... Uh, you know, start going down the route of simulation. You want to know exactly what you want to sort of learn or develop during simulation, and so I think the emphasis is that just as much as those technical factors are important for for uh, you know brain resuscitation or any form of resuscitation, uh, we want to emphasize the importance of these non technical factors as well. So crisis resource management, and so we wanted to outline all of this before we started doing the simulations uh, or talking about simulations. Um, Because you know we want to incorporate all of these principles into simulation and and give it the same priority we would for you know making sure someone knows how to do the NIH or uh, read a CT scan, Uh, and so I think that's that's why we sort of took this route. Excellent. So uh, we're gonna
0: kind of uh, let's let's kind of go go around the table and talk about uh, one of the most important aspects uh, of crisis resource management, which is. after the situation is complete, whether that's the code or a tough consult or uh, us being called down to speak to a family member that's in distress or loved one or the patient themselves, uh, or, or we observe challenges with uh, providers, meaning uh, we sense or see a provider being in distress. And it's this concept of a debrief,
2: right? So I think, um, you know, debriefing is, is important regardless of, you know, how people sort of feel about that particular resuscitation. I think even in the resuscitation that you think went, uh, you know, completely by the book, everything was done really well, I think a debrief still very important for that uh, because there are sort of little things that you can pick up on and, and things that can always be improved um so you know i i think it's pretty cool you know the origins of where debriefs come from right um in the military world in the policing world uh you know debrief is such a common thing right uh, you you have a mission it's done uh, it's either successful or it's not but you always have that debrief at the end to kind of walk through what happened um you know it's, it's a moment to sort of reflect uh you know see what was done how we feel about it um how we can Mm-hmm. uh change things moving forward and and next time uh how it can be done better. Uh, and so I think uh, it's a, it's a really important part and, and what, you know, what we call a hot debrief or something that's done, you know, the debrief done right after, uh, resuscitation, I think it's kind of the best time to do it, right. When things are still fresh in our mind, uh, the, the emotions are real, the, you know, the, the tasks that we just completed are still fresh in our mind. So I think it's a, it's an important part.
1: Yeah. So, so with debriefing, um, you know, as, as we all know that there's definitely, a kind of a, a a large practice when it comes to medical education, simulation education, where um, we were using it from an educational standpoint to help talk about a a learning experience, um, identify any issues that we would want to reflect on and, and build upon that. When we talk about debriefing in the clinical environment, uh, it can actually come from one of two purposes, um, and you can use both of them to your advantage. The first being um, as a source of emotional offloading. So as you can imagine, some of these situations are very stressful, it's very taxing on the team, and having an ability to to emotionally offload or get some of the, that, that stress out immediately out into the open and, and Talk about it with your colleagues, especially the colleagues that were in that same experience with you, um, is a, a proven way and it's a demonstrated way uh, to maintain that wellness and resiliency.
0: You want to just quickly highlight those key points of the hot debrief and just kind of maybe say a few words about each of them.
1: So the hot debrief uh, is intended to happen immediately after uh, after a clinical event, and we're we're looking at just being able to complete a rapid. Fire uh, session to talk about um, some of the the main issues uh, that could have uh, that might have been highlighted in the scenario, and also identify any potential major shortcomings or um, or, or issues or or sources for latent area error that could impact patient safety, so that we can make rapid correction. Okay, so so the first thing that you have to do is is you have to uh, initiate it. You have to tell everybody, hey, listen, everybody, uh, come huddle around. We're we're gonna quickly debrief that situation, and uh, the second. Uh, Piece to that is ensuring that it is a psychologically safe space. Recognizing that we're not here to blame each other. We're not here to, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, say this was all your fault. And and you know, if we had another team member, we probably would have gone better. But but recognize that this is a space that we can all talk about our perspectives. um, And you know, we're we're doing this in order to improve the system and and just to help build our team. The review phase is one is probably the biggest phase of, of the, the debrief session, uh, it, and we usually start off with um, a quick review of some of the major events uh, that occurred. And the reason we do this is twofold. So first off, it helps um, everyone come to the same frame of mind. It's very easy uh, to to kind of tunnel vision yourself, and 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 you know. Uh, when you' when you're completing a task and you, that task is your only priority in the heat of the moment it's very easy to lose sight of the big picture we talk about this all the time when like nurses have their head down the whole time they're really trying to focus on like you know starting an iv or getting some medications in or or, or whatnot and they don't even know what the patient looks like because they they uh, didn't even look at the patient's face and, and they lose sight of the situation in the same manner many other team members may be f- so focused on their task that they lose sight of the bigger picture. So so having a quick rapid fire review of the overall situation and um, uh, having someone summarize some of the major events can help everyone uh, come to the same page. The second uh, part of the review is to look at uh, some of the successes and challenges. What are the things that went well? What are the things that we can work on? And generally, um, you can kind of clump them into uh, four different fields, Uh, so, so personnel, So uh, did we have the right team members there? Um, Did we identify a need for any other team members? Uh, Did we have the right processes or or do we need to alter some of our established processes? Equipment and logistics. Um, Did we have the right equipment when we needed it? Uh, Was there any malfunctions? Uh, Is there a way to ensure that we always have the same equipment every single time? Okay, um, and then the, 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 the fourth uh, component is communication. You can imagine that communication any, and any barriers to intra-team communication uh, can be highlighted here. Did everybody know what was going on? Did all of the tasks uh, that were asked, were they executed? Uh, were they acknowledged and were they executed in a timely manner? One of the big things with uh, the review phase is that we wanna take a no blame approach and we gotta uh, try to avoid uh, critiquing individual performance. And and we're really trying to focus on fixing the system and taking a a systems approach to the whole thing uh, and really looking for any sources of latent error. The last... uh, pro tip that we would have for conducting a hot debrief is to avoid solution jumping, avoid trying to say, okay, if we had this piece of equipment, uh, or uh, this quick fix, uh, it would solve all of our problems uh, for uh, the rest of our lifetime. Um, the The purpose of the hot debrief is to just help the team members uh, consolidate any of their, their immediate viewpoints, not necessarily look for a solution at that point in time, uh, we can leave that to the rest of the quality improvement team to take a deeper dive uh, and perform what's called a cold debrief, which is a little bit outside of the scope of our our paper here. But um, then they can take a more systems approach and and look at uh, um, the situation in a more analytical manner.
0: That's awesome. So those are all the key points of the hot debrief. We always want to say as well that if you don't have the time to do it, you can always schedule a follow-up. It's just hard, as Pav said, with ad hoc teams to get everyone's uh, schedules to line up. So we encourage some form of quick, hot debrief after the situation, and then if that is really not possible, to set it up later. Um, One of the things that I wanted to just conclude on, and then we'll go around saying what your favorite pillar of crisis resource management is, is that we believe that this could be applied through the whole stack. Uh, I use the word stack like from a software world. Uh, of like computer engineering, of uh, different parts of a of, of a complicated software, whether it's a, you know a messaging app or like something like Twitter. Essentially, um, you know this can be applied to everything we do. It doesn't have to be just for the code. If I went to, if I could go back and be a PGY you know two again, if I knew I was on call for medicine, I was the medicine senior or the neurology senior, and I would be coming to a code. You know we encourage mindfulness, preparation, go ahead and introduce yourself to that charge nurse at night. Go ahead and call the critical care nurse who's going to be responding to the codes and say, hi, my name is Human. I'm going to be on call tonight. What's your name? Great. So, you know, uh, I look forward to working with you if anything comes up. And that sort of icebreaker already goes a long way of getting yourselves into the mental model and, uh, Uh, what we'd like to call, again, from the kind of the Navy SEAL world, uh, condition yellow, which is a calm state of vigilance. Um, And I think I'll also say that, you know, kindness goes a long way, being nice to people in the resuscitation, being polite, uh, addressing people by their first name, saying thank you. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Let's unite together on this mission to get this patient through. Uh, the resuscitation or into the scanner or thrombolysis or whatever. These types of words really help bringing a team together. So um, let's go around the table. What's your favorite pillar of CRM before we sign off?
1: You know, I'll, I'll, I'll add to that uh, w- uh, with what you said, Homan. Um, you know, niceness goes a long way, but so does a cup of coffee. Um, just putting it up there. Uh, next time you see me in the hospital. Um, but <laughs> nice. anyway, the uh, I guess my favorite uh, pillar of, of resuscitation will kind of uh, go back on, on what I said earlier about leadership and, and recognizing that every single team member has a re- role and responsibility to be a leader, whether or not you're the actual designated team leader of that team, um, or you're a team member that's participating as part of that team. We all have a role in speaking up and making sure that, you know, uh, all the pieces of information is conveyed.
0: Nice, so you essentially flipped role designation on its head and said, role like role clarity is for everyone and also a flat hierarchy great what about you pav
2: oh you know what i i have to go with uh, communication um you know all, all too many times you know i've been in situations where sometimes the communication breaks down it can be you know one of the most frustrating parts uh so i'm a big uh, proponent of that uh you know we should always be communicating uh there shouldn't be a breakdown in that uh and when there is you know uh, bad things happen so we really have to work on that communication
0: That's awesome. It's cool that we all had different ones. So mine will be, I guess, uh, situational awareness, kind of that bird's eye view. I really love the zero point survey that uh, Cliff and Scott put together and uh, that we put it into this world uh, it's just so cool to do that zero point survey but uh, we encourage you to take a look at the figures on the paper especially that figure one and go through that every time you're on if you're on call i think it's a great way to start with that zero point survey so uh, we really thank you for uh, thank you bo- both of you guys for joining uh this uh, podcast and also doing so- all the heavy lifting and contributing fantastically to this uh, really seminal paper and uh uh, in, in the world in the field of stroke for resuscitation um, and uh, we will talk to you next time on stroke fm say bye-bye bye-bye see you later guys
2: pav signing off signing off stroke fm